We will begin this morning. We will pick it up in Deuteronomy 10, towards the end of it. But before we get there, uh, would you let me open us in prayer? Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we pray this morning that you would make your word fruitful in us. We pray for the children downstairs and their teachers and leaders, that you would give them wisdom and that you would open their hearts to communicate your word well and to receive your word with eagerness and with zeal and with hope. And we pray for ourselves, too, that during this hour you would increase our understanding and that you would use what we read of Moses today to deepen our faith and to help us hold on to the words that he has given and that you have given through him. These are divine words meant to satisfy and direct our soul, and they do. And so we pray that you would give us that satisfaction and direction that we seek from you this morning. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I've mentioned this before, um, but worth maybe repeating again. Deuteronomy, uh, Moses here is basically presenting a sermon. And it's very unfortunate that we can't sit here for 15, 16, 17 hours and just knock the whole thing out in one shot and let the flow of thought go as it is, but we can't do that uh, for, for a number of reasons. So what I'm going to do this morning by way of review is simply start reading the text in Deuteronomy 10, verse 12. Last week we covered this material, but I'm simply going to reread it. I won't make any comments about it, but we're going to be coming back to it because, again, this is one sermon and the themes don't stop at the end of verse 19. They continue on. And to get our handle this morning, I will simply start reading in Deuteronomy 10, verse 12 and go through verse 19, and we will pick it up then with verse 20, where we are this morning. So Deuteronomy 10, verse 12. And now, O Israel, what does the Lord your God ask of you but to fear the Lord your God, to walk in all his ways, to love him, to serve the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, and to keep the commandments and statutes of the Lord which I am commanding for your good? Behold, to the Lord your God belong the heaven and the heaven of heavens, the earth with all that is in it. Yet the Lord set his heart in love on your fathers and chose their offspring after them, you above all people, as you are this day. Circumcise, therefore, this foreskin of your heart and be no longer stubborn. For the Lord your God is God of God and Lord of lords, the great, the mighty, and the awesome God who is not partial and takes no bribe. He executes justice for the fatherless and the widow and loves the sojourner, giving him food and clothing. Love the sojourner, therefore, for you were sojourners in the land of Egypt. The verses that come after verse 19, which is the second command that we Uh, spent a good deal of time looking at. Verse 16 was one of them, circumcised the foreskin of your heart. The one where we ended last week is verse 19, love the sojourner. And as you can see, the character of God, as the one who loves the sojourner, 
lends the reason as to why Israel is to love the sojourner. Another reason for that is given in verse 19. For you were sojourners, or because you were sojourners in the land of Egypt. So Israel should have a certain sympathy towards those who have no home and are living as aliens in another land. But what comes in verse 20 and 21 adds more reason yet to why Israel is to love the sojourner. You shall fear the Lord your God. You shall serve him and hold fast to him, and by his name you shall swear. These verses do kind of stand on their own. In a sense, they begin a new unit, and they stand on their own. And what they do is they call for religious monogamy. Uh, There is only one God for Israel to worship and serve. And there are actually four verbs that are used here in reference for how Israel is to stand before the Lord. You shall fear the Lord your God, serve him, hold fast to him, and swear by his name. Now, unfortunately, most translations blur the syntax just a little bit. And I think it would be helpful if we were able to all read the KJV at this point, because it emphasizes the text more helpfully. In verse 20, Yahweh your God you shall fear, him you shall serve, by his name, uh, him you shall cling to, and by his name you shall swear. Him, the pronoun, is always first. In our translations, it's flipped. But the reason following the KJV which follows the Hebrew most closely, is important is because it sets a certain tone, which is him and him alone. So it's not merely that, yep, you should serve Yahweh. No, no. Him you shall serve. Him you shall fear. Him you shall swear by. And it gives an emphasis by having the the pronouns first. It's emphasizing him and him alone. There is no other. Don't go in any other direction. Given who God is... Israel has no legitimate reason to look for any other God or to serve or fear any other, which is why it relates back to verse 17 that we had just read, right? So verse 17, For the Lord your God is God of gods and Lord of lords, the great, the mighty, and the awesome God. So this verse here, which is fear, serve, cling to, and swear by, that relates to what has come previously and it cuts to the heart of Israel's tendency to wander to lesser lovers. There is no greater God. Who do you think you should serve, should serve and fear and swear by? If not this God who is God of God and Lord of Lords. And so this is how Israel relates to the Lord. Not only by serving and fearing him, but by loving the sojourner. So you love the sojourner because this great God does it, and you are to fear this great God. And he's commanded you to do this thing, which is love the sojourner. So Israel relates to the Lord through fearing God's wrathful vengeance, through attitudes of service and love, and through a spirit of truthful honesty, which is the swear by his name. 
Israel is to recognize that everything she does, we might say all the business she engages in, is done before the Lord. And what is interesting is clinging and loving to the Lord with a heart of integrity and in light of the fear of the Lord, that is the foundation and the reason for which we actually end up loving other people. Let's go back to Leviticus 19. And you will see the themes of Deuteronomy 10 screaming off the page. Leviticus 19, and we can start in verse 9. This is uh, Leviticus 19, verses 9 and 10. I've labeled service rendered to God who cares for the poor. Remember, God is the one who cares for the sojourner, the fatherless, and the widow. And here it is, Leviticus 19, verses 9 and 10. When you reap the harvest of your land, you shall not reap your field right up to its edge, neither shall you gather the gleaning after your harvest, which is all the produce that escapes the combine, right? So all of the corn you see laying in the field after the harvester has gone through, don't go back for it. And you shall not strip your vineyard bare, neither shall you gather the fallen grapes of your vineyard. You shall leave them for the poor and the sojourner. I am the Lord your God. Verses 11 to 12. Honest dealings in accordance with God's name. You shall not steal. You shall not deal falsely. You shall not lie to one another. You shall not swear by my name falsely and so profane the name of your God. I am the Lord. Verses 13 to 16. Honest dealings in the fear of God who does not lift up the face as we saw last week. Uh, He's not partial to the poor, nor does he take a bribe. Verses 13 to 16 here of Leviticus 19. You shall not oppress your neighbor or rob him. The wages of a hired worker shall remain with you, shall not remain with you all night until the morning. You shall not curse the deaf, nor put a stumbling block before the blind, but you shall fear your God. I am the Lord. You shall do no injustice in court. You shall not be partial to the poor or defer to the great, But in righteousness shall you judge your neighbor. You shall not go around as a slanderer among your people, and you shall not stand up against the life of your neighbor. I am the Lord. One thing I want to point out there is back in verse 14. Do not curse the deaf or put a stumbling block before the blind, but you shall fear your God. There is a relationship between our fear of the Lord and our concern for those that are, are those who are created in his image. That all comes to a head in verses 17 and 18, the climax of this section here in Leviticus 19. Love for God as expressed through a love for his people. You shall not hate your brother in your heart, but you shall reason frankly with your neighbor lest you incur sin because of him. You shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. Moses has had plenty of time to think about that. Leviticus 19, its implications, and how to drive the point home to Israel. 
Because God is this way. He's given us these laws. And if you are to cling to the Lord, if you are to fear Him, to serve Him, and to swear by His name, that has implications for how you relate to other people. He expresses that in Deuteronomy 10, verses 19 and 20, this way. Love the sojourner, therefore, for you were sojourners in the land of Egypt. You shall fear the Lord your God. Those aren't unrelated. Those are deeply related. And the grammar and the syntax of the text emphasizes, uh, to an extent, that relation. You shall serve him and hold fast to him, and by his name you shall swear. So all of this is for because of verse 21. He is your praise. He is your God. When it says he is your praise, that could be taken perhaps three different ways. Um, first, Yahweh is the object of their praises, which is to say, the Lord is the one you praise. Your God is the one you praise. The second way it could go is this. When other nations look at Israel, they will praise the Lord, Yahweh by name, who has worked for them and has brought them into a share of his own glory. So when other nations look at Israel, they recognize something is different about them, not just in character, but in terms of historical fact. There's no other nation that the Lord redeemed from the house of slavery and brought into a land of their own after clearing out other nations. That's unique. Not to say other peoples haven't migrated, not to say there haven't been wars where one people took over another people, but a slave population. A slave population not only escaped their captors, but drove out nations more powerful and more numerous than them. That's unique. The fame of God's name is the whole point of Israel's redemption. Israel could not have done this on her own. And when Israel is looked at by the nations of the world, they will see the Lord chose them and the Lord brought them out. And their own well-being is wrapped up in harmonious relationships with the God who did that. And so other nations will look at Israel and they will say, wow, that's amazing. And not only will Israel receive praise for who they are, their God will receive praise. So if we go back real quick to Deuteronomy chapter 4, this idea has been brought up once already by Moses. Deuteronomy chapter 4, verses 5 to 7. See, I have taught you statutes and rules as the Lord my God commanded me that you should do them in the land that you are entering to take possession of it. Keep them and do them, which are all the rules and statutes, for that will be your wisdom and your understanding in the sight of the peoples who, when they hear these statutes, will say, surely this great nation is a wise and understanding people. Now that's Israel's praise. But continue on in verse 7. For what great nation is there that has a God so near to it as the Lord our God is to us whenever we call upon him? 
Israel's connection to the Lord brings Israel up into the same sort of praise that is due God alone. And that's remarkable. How many times in the New Testament are we reminded? We are brought up into Christ's glory. That is a glory of righteousness. That is a glory of wisdom and understanding. And that is a glory that we share in with God. So when Moses tells Israel, he is your praise, it certainly means that Israel praises the Lord, but it also means that as other nations look to Israel, they will praise the Lord, but as those who are connected to him, they are brought up into that praise as well. That contrasts with what Israel tends to praise. Back in Deuteronomy 9, chapter 4, Moses warned Israel, Do not praise yourselves. Do not say in your heart, Deuteronomy 9, 4, After the Lord your God has thrust them out before you, it is because of my righteousness that the Lord has brought me in to possess this land. Israel will be tempted to praise herself, as we are often tempted to praise ourselves. But it's ironic that those who claim and boast in their righteousness are those who fail to achieve righteousness precisely because they tend to run into idolatry because they're trusting their own understanding. Don't do that, Moses says. Don't praise yourself. You will get lost in that. Praise the Lord. He is the one who gives you reason, and hope for praise. Jeremiah chapter 9 brings all this home quite nicely, I think. Jeremiah 9, 23 and 24. Thus says the Lord, Let not the wise man boast in his wisdom. Let not the mighty man boast in his might. Let not the rich man boast in his riches. But let him who boasts boast in this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord who practices steadfast love, justice, and righteousness in the earth. For in these things I delight, declares the Lord. So here's, there's the contrast. Don't praise yourself. That's not what you boast in. What you boast in is the Lord and the fact that he has made himself known to you. That is your praise. And Jeremiah, no doubt, bases that largely off of what he sees happening here in Deuteronomy 10, verse 20. Thoughts or questions over what we've covered so far this morning? Okay. Well, what we've done so far is seen how Deuteronomy 10.20 looks backward in the text. Let's see how it looks forward in the text. So we'll start again with Deuteronomy chapter 10, verse 20. You shall fear the Lord your God. You shall serve him and hold fast to him, and by his name you shall swear. He is your praise. He is your God who has done for you these great and terrifying things that your eyes have seen. So, chapter 10, verse 20 is a fourfold command, again, of fearing, serving, 
clinging to and swearing by the Lord's name. The reason they are to do so is because he is their praise. And the reason he is their praise is the last part of verse 21. He's done for you these great and terrifying things that your eyes have seen. As a result, uh, let's, let's look at verse 22. What is it that the Lord has done for Israel? What are the great and terrifying things the Lord has done? Its most immediate reference is verse 22. Your fathers went down to Egypt, 70 persons, and now the Lord your God has made you as numerous as the stars of heaven. And you say, well, that's not a great and terrifying thing. Well, terrifying for who? The, the Egyptians were terrified at Israel's multiplication and at at any rate, that was a great thing for the Lord to do on behalf of Israel. And so its most immediate reference is verse 22. And as a result of that multiplication, and there will be other things to come to, but as a result of that multiplication, Israel is to respond to the Lord's great deeds appropriately. Chapter 11, verse 1. You shall therefore love the Lord your God and keep his charge, his statutes and rules, and his commandments always. Now one um, rule of thumb I generally try to encourage people to do when they're reading their Bibles is ignore chapter and verse divisions. Um, Ignore the chapter and verse division here. Pay attention to the text itself, especially the therefore in verse 1, because that's what's triggering the thought continues on from chapter 10 into verse 11. You shall therefore love the Lord your God and keep his charge. Because the Lord has acted in a certain way, or because the Lord is a certain way, he's the God of God and Lord of Lords, and because he's acted in a certain way, he's done all of these great and terrible things for them, Israel is to respond a certain way. You shall therefore love the Lord your God and keep his charge. Jesus was an Old Testament man, a Deuteronomy man in particular. It was not revolutionary when he brought together in John 14, 15, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. Those two things are tightly wound together in Deuteronomy 11:1. 1. You shall love the Lord and keep his charge. And that happens because the foundation of the Lord's character and the foundation of his work are what's being responded to. And so it is for Jesus too, Right? Because of who he is, he is lovely. Because of what he has done for us, he provokes our love of him. If we love him, we will respond as well by keeping those commandments that he has given us. And because God has done this for all Israel, all Israel, at all time, in every place, is supposed to obey. But Moses makes a switch in verse 2 that our English translations, again, Um, Maybe our English language fails to convey. Moses says, And consider today, since I'm not speaking to your children who have not known or seen it, consider the discipline of the Lord your God. Moses makes a switch. In verse, what, what he's been doing in chapter 10 and in chapter 11, verse 1, is he has been using the singular form of you which is to say, you as a corporate entity, O Israel, circumcise your hearts. You, O Israel, 
love the Lord your God. So even all the way in verse uh, 1 of chapter 11, it's singular. You all, um, y'all, y'all, as I was recently informed, uh, y'all love Yahweh your God, and y'all keep his uh, keeping and statutes and judgments and commandments. Uh, All Israel is supposed to do that. But what happens is Moses makes a switch to the plural you in verse 2. Moses is no longer speaking to all Israel at all time. He's speaking to this specific group of Israelites, and not only this specific group of Israelites, but particularly the elders of the group of the Israelites. This is this specific generation, especially the leaders. So he narrows his focus down a bit. You have seen today, or you consider today, or you should know today. Verse 2, again, the NASB has it. Uh, There are certain things that this generation of Israelites are to know. And what is it that they are to know? So verse 2 of chapter 11 And know today, since I'm not speaking to your children who have not known or seen it, know the discipline of the Lord your God, his greatness, his mighty hand, and his outstretched arm, his signs and his deeds that he did in Egypt to Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, and all his land, and to what he did to the army of Egypt, to their horses and to their chariots, how he made the water of the Red Sea flow over them as they pursued after you, and how the Lord has destroyed them to this day, and what he did to you in the wilderness until you came to this place, and what he did to Dothan and Abiram, the sons of Eliab, sons of Reuben, how the earth opened its mouth and swallowed them up with their households, their tents, and every living thing that followed them in the midst of all Israel. Your eyes have seen all the great work of the Lord that he did. That is one sentence in Hebrew. And the grammar of it is a little confusing. The ESV has it this way. And consider today, then the parenthetical statement, consider the discipline of the Lord. Israel is to consider the Lord's discipline. But most particularly, what Israel is to consider comes in verse 7. The, the sentence is com- it's begun in verse 2. And know today, what are we to know? Verse 7, that your eyes have seen the great work that the Lord did for you. What Israel is ultimately supposed to pay attention to is what their eyes saw. All these great, magnificent things the Lord has done. That's what you keep central in your mind. What their eyes saw was the discipline, as the ESV has it, or the chastening and the work of the Lord, the doings of the Lord uh, there as well. All of this is contrasted with their children who did not see it. Remember who Moses is speaking to. We've spent a good deal of time in the past talking about how Moses collapses the generations of Israel, and he says, y'all did this when you were there. The people who were there were not responsible directly for the sin of Sinai. 
It was their parents who were. All of these people were 20 years old and younger when they reached Kadesh Barnea and rejected the land. But Moses imputes those sins to this generation. Now he's making another distinction. This generation, who would have been 20 years old, 19 or younger, this generation who was not responsible for the sin and who remained to enter the land, they did see a lot of things. Many of them would have seen the waters flow over the Egyptians. Many of them would have seen everything that the Lord did for them along the way. Many of them would have seen all of these things Moses draws out. And he draws out four different things, and we'll come to that in a minute. But what he's doing is he's picking out a selection of the people who are standing before him and saying, you saw it, you didn't. In other words, we could do it this way. We could say something like, you know, you American people, did you really vote for that president? What were you thinking? Right? We could do that. But what's happening here is Moses is making a finer-tuned distinction. I'm now talking to you as opposed to your children who are downstairs saying, you elected this guy? What were you thinking? Well, the children are kind of left out of the discussion. That's what Moses is doing here in verse 2. And you shall know, since I'm not speaking to your children who have not known or seen it, I'm speaking to you. He narrows down his focus. This generation that he's speaking to has more reason than any other generation to pay attention to what Moses has seen because they've seen the stark contrast between the judgment and the salvation of God. You have more reason than any other to pay attention. Verse 2 emphasizes that they have seen the discipline or the chastening. That is described four ways in the rest of the text. It is described... First, let me scroll down where I can see it most plainly here. First, it is described my numbers disappeared. Well, anyway, go back to my other thing. Sorry about that. First, it is described as his signs, his deeds, and all that he did in Egypt to Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and to his land. That is uh, almost certainly a reference to the plagues. What did the Lord do when you were still in Egypt? The second thing, what he did to the army of Egypt, to their horses and to their chariots, and he specifies even that, how he made the water of the Red Sea flow over them as they pursued after you. So there's the defeat of the Egyptian army. Not only that, Moses ends that with, and how the Lord has destroyed them to this day. So thorough was the Lord's work that 40 years later, the powerful Egyptian army is still a non-threat to this wandering group of nomads. The Lord says, you saw me do that. The third thing, what he did to you or for you in the wilderness until you came to this place. And this is kind of a, a tougher one. There are two ways this can be translated. It can be said, and what he did to you in the wilderness, as the ESV says, or it could be what he did for you, as the NIV says. That ambiguity is almost certainly intentional. Moses could have been more specific if he wanted to be. I think that ambiguity is intentional. Repeatedly through the wilderness, 
the Lord provided for the needs of his people when they cried out to him and simultaneously struck down the rebellious among them. That is something he did to the people. It is also something he did for the people. And so this is a great example of the chastening that was for the good of the living, but also resulted in the death and judgment of many. And so here we have it three times so far. First, they saw the judgment of the Lord on the Egyptians in the plagues and the salvation of Israel who was spared from most of them, at least the worst ones. They saw the judgment of God over the armies of the Egyptians who were opposing God's people and the salvation God worked for his people who he brought through the Red Sea safely. They saw the judgment of God on the rebellious of Israel who craved and grumbled and the salvation that God worked as he provided for the needs of the people at the same time. So once again, God sends judgment on the enemies, but it's not only those who are outside Israel, the Egyptians, it's also those who pose a spiritual threat to Israel internally. And Moses follows that up, the fourth and last example, the most specific one, verse 6. And what he did to Dothan and Abiram, the sons of Eliab, son of Reuben, how the earth opened its mouth and swallowed them up with their households, their tents, and every living thing that followed them in the midst of all Israel. That example comes from Numbers 16. If you were to flip back there real briefly, especially if you have a, a paper copy, The section title in the ESV to Numbers 16 is Korah's Rebellion. We're not going to read very much here, but I wanted you to be able to see it in case you want to look at it as I talk for just a moment here. Korah's Rebellion of Numbers 16 actually contains two rebellions. Korah is a Levite And he gathers other Levites who feel slighted because the priesthood went to Aaron and the leadership for the tribe of Levi skipped them and went to others. Korah is feeling a particular grudge against Levi or against Aaron and against a couple of others because he has no prominent leadership in the tribe of Levi. Dothan and Abiram, who are Reubenites, oppose Moses' leadership. Numbers 16 intertwines those two rebellions. Likely it does so for this reason. Moses and Aaron are brothers. Can the Levites really overthrow Aaron if Moses is still in a position of authority? Vice versa, the Reubenites, who are the oldest, who stem from the oldest tribe of Jacob, remember Reuben is the oldest son, they feel slighted because the civil leadership has not gone to them either. Moses has it. Can you really off Moses without also taking care of his brother Aaron at the same time, who's the high priest? These two guys wield the most power in all Israel. You can't topple one without toppling the other. Moses 
does not mention a word about Korah in Numbers 11. Why? Why focus on Dothan and Abiram, who this passage alone, I believe, emphasizes those two to the exclusion of all others? I think it's for this. In a sense, who the priest is doesn't threaten Israel's existence, right? There were many high priests in Israel, and Israel continued on. But if Moses is threatened, if Moses is no longer Israel's spiritual leader, what happens when there is no mediator between the Lord and his people? What happens if Moses, the prophet, who gives the words of God, is toppled? You're done. If you don't have the word of the Lord, which is what everyone lives on, right? Man does not live by bread alone, but lives by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. If the man who delivers God's word isn't there, what happens? Everything is done. And what Moses is drawing attention to is not the fact that he's the man, per se. It's that these people, Dothan and Abiram, threatened Israel as a nation. They would have never received what God promised them if they would have been successful in what they did. The Lord took care of it. Moses didn't do anything. He called them to the tents. They said, we're not coming to you. They stayed at home. So Moses goes out. And he tells all Israel, if these men are opposing the Lord, the Lord will do something new for you today. The ground will open up its mouth, swallow these men down alive, and take them to Sheol. That's exactly what happened. So the Lord executed judgment on Israel's enemies, who in this case happened to be internal, and provided salvation for the rest of the nation in one shot. That's how all four of these have gone. And what this generation of Israel knows is... God did that. We were there. We saw it. So Moses then follows this up, verse 7. Your eyes have seen all the great work of the Lord that he did. And we might say, yeah, so what's the, what's the point? What's the response? What what?" What's that matter? Verse 8. You shall therefore keep the whole commandment that I command you today. Because Israel knows who God is. He's the God of God and Lord of Lords. The great, mighty, and awesome God who does not defer to the poor or take a bribe from the rich. What are they supposed to do in light of that? Love your neighbor as yourself. In Deuteronomy 10, 10, 19. Deuteronomy 11, 1. You shall therefore love the Lord your God and keep his charge. Deuteronomy 11, 8. You shall therefore keep the whole commandment that I command you today. Because your eyes have seen all of this, this is what you are supposed to do. Now Moses, interestingly enough, here in verse 8, he does leverage strongly in light of the Dotham and Abiram thing. You shall therefore keep the whole commandment that I am commanding you today. 
Now Moses knows he's about to die. He's not looking to exert his authority over anyone, but he is calling them to the words that he has given because he knows they are the words of God. What we'll do here is we'll pause very briefly and then go into some application of all of this. But before we do, any questions about the text or comments? Very well. First, uh, three things to consider. Moses is speaking to the people who have seen God's historical redemptive work in real time. And the principle is this. You, older generation of Israel, who have seen and experienced more of God's great work than the younger ones, um, you have an obligation put on you that is more stringent than what is put on younger generations. Simply by a switch of pronouns, the plural you to the singular you, or vice versa, actually, singular you to plural you, Moses has made a shift that makes clear that older generations are more responsible than younger generations for fearing, serving, loving, and obeying the Lord. God does have higher expectations for the elder among us. Luke uh, 12, 48, we don't need to actually turn there, but there Jesus picks up the same idea, right? To whom much is given, much has been expected. If I have 60 years to look back and see the way the the Lord has worked in my life, do I have less excuse for not paying attention to the, the way the Lord is working and what the Lord has commanded of me, as opposed to if I have five years to reflect on it. My experiences of the Lord's work and seeing the trustworthiness of his word and seeing the way he works in the world, those add obligation. Knowledge adds obligation. This generation knows more, partly because they've experienced more, but they have known more. So their obligation to... Fear, love, serve, and obey is heightened, we might say. And more than that, the second thing to consider, um, I'll I'll just put it in our our context, Uh, church attendance and ritualistic worship is no safeguard against destruction. Israel has the tabernacle functioning. And Moses is saying, you can bring all your sacrifices you want to it. That's not what's going to ultimately do you any good. Galatians 5.6 is a place we could look. Um, I will read that one. I would encourage you to turn to Hebrews 6 and see what the author of Hebrews emphasizes as important. Galatians 5.6, passage I think we know well. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything but only faith working through love. Hebrews has it similar. But here, instead of saying positively what is important and what the Lord considers good and right, we're given a warning in Hebrews 6, verses 4 to 8. For it is impossible, in the case of those who have once been enlightened, 
which Moses is speaking to those who have been enlightened. Um, No, you know today, or you have known today, the chastening of the Lord, who have tasted the heavenly gift. All of those who are standing there are those who have experienced that and have a share in the Holy Spirit and have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the age to come. If that is you, and then have fallen away, it is impossible, in the case of those who have had this, and have fallen away, to restore them again to repentance, since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding them up to content, contempt. And now he, he has this analogy. And think of Israel's experience in light of this analogy. For the land that has drunk the rain often, that often falls on it, and produces a crop useful to those for whose sake it is cultivated, receives a blessing from God. But if it bears thorns and thistles, it is worthless and near to being cursed, and its end is to be burned. Moses is saying to this generation, and by extended principle to all older generations, you've seen the great works of the Lord. And there is a unique responsibility incumbent upon you who have seen those great works to to be obedient to the word that I am delivering. Not only does Israel have to receive that word, which Moses is commanding, not only do we have to receive that word, which Moses is commanding, we have to live by it. Because if we don't, we end up being the land that has often drunk the rain, which is receiving the word. We could change the metaphor to what we had this morning. The land that often receives the seed but doesn't produce a crop that's near to being burned if it doesn't take any solid effect. We could also go to Hebrews 10, verses 26 to 31, where again we see that knowledge increases obligation. Hebrews 10, 26. For if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the evidence of two or three witnesses. How much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and has profaned the blood of the covenant? by which he was sanctified and has outraged the spirit of grace. For we know him who said, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, and again the Lord will judge his people. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Back to Deuteronomy again. This generation has seen. This generation knows. And this generation ought to live in light of that fear of the Lord. And again, by extended principle, all of us, as we age, fall into that. And the more we age, the more that responsibility lies on us. Those are the two things. Number three, the last one here, Moses commands. Uh, Deuteronomy 11, verse 8. You shall keep the whole commandment that I command you today. And, and right now, I've only got a couple weeks left, so I've got a lot of things to squeeze in here. Um, but but uh, for today, 
Moses commands. I don't know how many of you are familiar with the Reformed view of preaching and what preaching is. I'll put it this way. Paul says in some of his New Testament letters, imitate me insofar as I imitate Christ, right? Where if I follow Christ, I am an example for you to follow because I'm following Christ, right? In preaching, insofar as it is the word of God that is delivered, that word is authoritative. Whether it be in exhortation, in warning, or in command. We should never say, well, I'm doing this because the preacher said to, or I should do this because the preacher said to, or you should do this because the preacher said to. Don't give the preacher that much power. And don't limit the command of God to the authority of humans. If the preacher is faithful, it's God who commands. Moses says, I'm commanding you. But he knows I'm delivering the word of the Lord. That is how we are to take preaching as well. And just as Moses does not deliver this address for his benefit, because he knows he's about to die, he delivers it for the benefit of his people. And preachers are to do the same thing. Deuteronomy, the last half of verse 8 here, that I am commanding you, why is Moses commanding the people? Is it simply to throw his weight around, as Dotham and Abiram accused him of, or is it because of what Moses himself says? That you may be strong and go in and take possession of the land that you are going over to possess, and that you may live long in the land that the Lord swore to your fathers to give to them and to their offspring, a land flowing with milk and honey. Moses holds out four hopes. I command you, says Moses, in the hope of four things. That you would be strong, that you would enter into the land, that you would possess Canaan, and that you would live long on that land. That is my hope for you through these commandments. Now the first one is perhaps the most surprising. It's the only one we haven't seen before, and to my knowledge it's the last time we'll actually see it. So let's focus on it for just a moment. That you may be strong. What does that mean? First, I think it does mean so that Israel will have the physical stamina and prowess she needs in order to accomplish her mission of driving out the nations and possessing the land. And the reason I say this certainly includes physical strength is because as we get to the end of Deuteronomy, one of the curses for disobedience is mental disillusionment, mental weakness that drains all the strength out of the body. There's nothing left for Israel to do. Physical ailments are a curse for disobedience, can be a curse for physical, let me rephrase that, Disobedience can result in physical ailments. That's maybe the best way to say it. And so there is an element in which Israel will not have the strength she needs to accomplish her mission if she disobeys God. And that makes perfect sense to us, right? We don't have the strength to advance the kingdom of God if we're not obeying what he says. And that certainly relates to mental and physical strength. But there's also a moral strength that is needed. Remember that Israel's primary objective when she's going into the land, what her act of dispossession is, is 
clearing out the land of all false forms of worship. Israel will not have the moral backbone to do what she needs to do if she disobeys the commandments of God. And so Moses says, I'm commanding you these things that you may be strong. He means strength in every way you can imagine. This is strength on the broadest sense, uh, moral and physical. I'll give you one illustration that is well-known and well-documented and well, maybe not well enough talked about in the church, but talked about in some quarters anyway. That's pornography. It's well-documented that pornography rewires the brain so that the synapses fire differently. There are chemical reactions that go on. There's electrical impulses. All of those things can be thrown off by someone who is immersed in pornography. Is that a physical or a moral problem? Well, yeah. That's, that's just a problem in every way. But the opposite is true. As one abstains from and resists temptation toward, toward pornography one's ability to stay out of it increases. Is that a physical or a moral strengthening? To which, again, yes. All of those things are brought together. Moses mentions that. By following what I command, you will have strength to accomplish the mission that the Lord has set before you. And in accomplishing that mission, there's tremendous blessing. You'll be strong, you'll go in, you'll possess the land, and you'll live in it for a long time. And the next thing we'll look at next week is, what is the goodness of that reward? Um, That is what Moses fixates on next. But before we close here, any thoughts or questions?